0: Welcome to Shed, a podcast brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. I'm your host, Eric Adams. During the fall of 2020, I interviewed members of our Martha's Vineyard community about the impact and implications of race in their lives. As a practicing therapist, I was interested in exploring the unique experiences that shape the lives of each guest and influence the way they see themselves and the world. We chose the name Shed to encourage listeners to do away with old beliefs that no longer serve us and to shed some light on systemic racism and its effects on us as individuals as well as the communities in which we live. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Today, we're going to sit down with Trey Johnson, a journalist from Philadelphia, and someone who addresses racial issues through his writing in a way that really struck a chord with us at Shed. Trey, from one Philadelphian to another, yo. (laughs) 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 So, got to read your articles. I'm embarrassed to say I wasn't familiar with your work, but I am now, and (laughs) I'm going to follow you because you really have a great way of articulating what feels like the collective experience of our people. An overarching theme, obviously, is race. And another overarching theme is change. Yeah. In therapy, a helpful model for change is a a five stages of change. Have you heard about this model at all? No. I use it with people in recovery sometimes. (laughs) It basically says that all change happens in stages, even changes that look like they happen overnight. There's often, if you look closely, there's a lot of incremental steps that have happened. Yeah. The first stage is pre-contemplation. We don't know there's a problem. We're not even thinking about it. It's not on our radar. The second stage is contemplation. Now we're starting to put some thought to it. The next stage is awareness. Now we've kind of internalized it. We really are aware. We don't need to think about it anymore. We know. The next stage is action. We're doing something about it. And the fifth stage is maintenance. Some yeah. of the models have a preparation stage in there, too. So you go from awareness to preparation to action. But you can see what I'm saying. There's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a model of change. Where do you think we are as a country in the stages of change around race? It's the first stage.
1: <laughs> Contempl- <laughs> pre-contemplation? You, yeah. you don't think we're thinking about it? No. No, I think we live in like echoed bubbles that makes it feel like the conversation is bigger than it is. But yeah, no, we're at stage one. We're still at stage one.
0: How do you reconcile that with the number of people we see in the streets and showing up for
1: protests? Those are thousands. We are a country of millions. So there is some movement, but not enough? Yeah, there's never enough. If it's not everyone, it's never, it's never enough.
0: Is that goal too high? No, no. So we want everyone to get on board. Absolutely.
1: I want a higher premium of people maybe at stage three or four of what you're talking about.
0: In your article about when black people are in pain, white people join book clubs. Sure. What you described was your different experiences as a young man, your different ages. And then at the end you said it all came through with George Floyd. And I felt personally that happened to me, hmm. that I re-experienced every traumatic racial experience that I had as a kid, as a young man, and it all came up then, when I saw that knee on that neck. Yeah. I couldn't look away. I couldn't stop watching, but I didn't want to see it anymore. So after watching the video, maybe five or six times in a row, something inside me snapped. Maybe a armor that had developed around my heart. It's hard to live in the pain knowing what's happening to our brothers and sisters at the hands of the people we pay to protect and serve us. I began to write for the first time. So I'm wondering yeah.
1: where this article came from. It was like almost the opposite for me. I avoided that video for the longest time. Part of me was hyper aware of the news about his death, but a big part of me was just like, there's no way in hell I'm gonna look at that video. Like yeah. I'm already on the edge with the pandemic. I feel like my toes are already dangling yeah. on the precipice of depression. Like, I don't need this to tip me over and so i avoided it for a while like a lot of people what i started spending my time doing more and more during a pandemic is just like scrolling through facebook right mm-hmm. and so one day in particular on the back end of the video being released and more of the protests had started happening i was scrolling through facebook and some white friends of mine that i've known for years you get those little notifications about other things that people are doing mm-hmm. so and so so and so and so and so are starting an anti-racist book club Not the, mm. like these that's are it? people. Yeah, it was. I'm like pretty chill most of the time, but there's certain things that will always like light a spark in me. Um, and particularly when it comes to like our people, when I see things, it just doesn't pass the sniff test. Mm. I like it just sends me spiraling in a different direction. What do you do? I write, you know, mm-hmm. like and that's what I did. I wrote a post on Facebook and I was just like, here it is again. Like this stuff is happening. And like half of y'all that I know, like white folks that I know, are talking about starting a goddamn book club. Mm. And I'm like, why? And so uh, there's all these comments and stuff. And this one friend of mine, a writer, Cynthia Greenlee, she commented, she's like, this would probably make a good essay, you know? What's the response been? (laughs) I mean, the response has been varied. I mean, it's been wildly strong. It's like spawned all sorts of like conversations and talks and more work. And I think in a lot of ways, if you're going to like compartmentalize it into camps of people, I think there's been at a very high level, I think black people have been like, Thank you, like I couldn't quite figure out what was driving me crazy about when things happen, but this feels right. Mm -hmm. And then like the response has been wildly varied with white people who reach out to me. Some are reaching out apology by way of like seeking like some type of absolution. And these are people I don't even know, but they're like, ah, Trey, like I gotta stop reading. But it's so important to me, but I like gotta stop reading. I gotta do more. Mm -hmm. I got a lot of like, I gotta do more Mm -hmm. um, responses from
0: people. You think people are asking you to let them off the hook in some way?
1: You know, I think my longstanding feeling is that part of the stagnation we have on change is that it is very hard for white people to divorce the idea of innocence or goodness. You know, we both want people then to deeply internalize it because I think that internalization is a big catalyst for change. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you don't want people get stuck in like the guilt loop or in the flagellation loop right. around like what this stuff means. And I think there's a lot of that. I think there's a lot of people who are just like tell me I'm good, right? I'm not one of the white white people that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of the bad people. Like just Help me figure out which ways that I'm good. But Trey, are you
0: suggesting
1: that people don't educate themselves around this issue? One of the things that people constantly say, like, I'm in a book club. Sorry. And I'm like, come on. Like that is not one. I'm a former English teacher. I was an English major. I clearly write. Um, I clearly want to be read and heard. The thing I zero in with people is like, did you actually read the article? Or did you stop at the headline? And I think there's a confirmation loop for folks where there's a lot of, I want to feel bad because I can see myself in this splinter of a thing inside of this. So like, no, it's, I definitely want people to educate themselves. I also think that education is a very broad term. And so it should be books and it should be books and developing relationships with black communities. It Mm -hmm. should be books and developing relationships with black communities and having conversations with with folks. It's all those things and going to therapy. You know, like to me it's the and and not the but or what. Because what's the point of gaining new knowledge if you don't do anything with it? Right. Mm -hmm. Look, call it for what it is. Like I've been part of book clubs. I own tons of books. I know people don't finish these books. Like, (laughs) give me a (laughs) break here. Like, like, that's the other thing about it, too. It's like, this is a very surface action that fits along the spectrum of a lot of other, like, performative actions, I Mm -hmm. feel like. It's great you want to signal things this way, but what else are you doing as a result? Mm. So people may agree, yes, we got to stop the
0: police from killing black people. Yes, we need to hold them accountable. But I don't know that people go much deeper than that. Yeah. So what we're talking about, in a way, is holding white people accountable for inaction. Would you say that's right?
1: Uh, yes, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I would say like, you know, you know, part of the thing that I say too about all this is that, look, the books, the videos, the social media stuff, like this is not new. Like we've actually always been saying and telling you these stories. Like I point to the consumption of pop culture and music all the time. Like those black pop culture and stories are replete these stories, these feelings, these like call for change Mm -hmm. for eons now. Mm -hmm. It's just that people have chosen not to listen. Your black coworkers, friends and stuff have largely told you about the times that they, either you've made them uncomfortable Mm -hmm. or situations that they've been in have been uncomfortable. You've just chosen not to either listen or act. And I think the pandemic has been a catalyst Mm -hmm. for a lot of people to choose to at least listen a little bit more and act in a slightly different way. And my hope now is to see like, okay, for however long we're gonna be in this cloud of a pandemic What does the sustainability of change action look like? But certainly also, and when it's over, how are you going to be fundamentally different in terms of your sustainable attitude and actions too? Mm. It's just not good enough to respond right now.
0: It's interesting. I know lots of folks that really appreciate the music of struggle and protest, but are so disconnected from where it comes from, the pain that it originates from.
1: I think in Philly, I went to um, a Kendrick Lamar concert Mm -hmm. and... You know, God bless Kendrick Lamar. He's gotten so big, I couldn't afford to like sit as close as I wanted to. (laughs) But I was up in these like, uh, you know, kind of like nosebleed seats with my girlfriend at the time, and surrounded all around us were largely white attendees, right? And so, like, his song "All Right" comes on. We're gonna be all right. We're gonna be all right. And I'm, I'm watching these like swarms of like young, twenty-something, thirty-something white kids and people just like chanting fervently along with the song. And like, on the one hand it is beautiful the way that we all Mm -hmm. find ourselves inside of art and music. And on the other, I'm like, I know where y'all are going right after this. You're going to white bars, you're going back into white neighborhoods. You don't understand that this is also a song around resilience and persistence in the face of a lot of oppression. Mm. Um, And the kind of clarion call that like, despite the continued struggle and like knee on our neck, we will find a way to be all right. Like that is a totally different message than just like, my boss like pissed me off today, but you know what? I'm gonna be all right. That's true. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so uh and so there's that, you know, there's things like that where I'm just like I'm really wondering about like we consume, but we don't actually like digest, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the big chasms that has to be closed.
0: Therapy really is about change and transformation. Mm-hmm. To that end. We talked a little bit about the importance of reading and education. Psychoeducation has proven to be a real agent of change for folks. They learn, they get new information, they become aware, yeah. and then they're able to act on that awareness. Do you find that happens?
1: Yeah, I find it happens when people have the fortitude to stay with it, right? To Um, read the whole book (laughs) as a good start. Cover to cover, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I do think it is possible. I think this is where it's important for people to get proximate to a lot of these issues and to a lot of people who are consistently impacted by the thing that needs to be changed. And so, like, when I think about, like, what has been, like, proof points in that, I think it really is about, like, what are the ways that you can find ways to be more intimately immersed in environments, communities, situations that are othering than your your lived experience. When mm-hmm. you constantly drink in that type of environment, those types of communities, you do fundamentally have a shift and change behavior. And then the thing I think is crucially important in addition for white people or anybody who's part of a dominant group that has the ability to oppress other people is think about when you go back into your tribal like setting, what ways are you are you or are you not like holding up accountability to people who are still on their journey? and are not as far along as you are like you're willing to like say something to your friends to your boo boo to your parents like that's when i know that you're getting a little further along because that's the disruption that we need to see happen too
0: i got my masters in marriage and family therapy when i was looking to try to figure out well you know what degree i wanted to pursue one of the reasons i went to this particular degree is because they don't put a lot of emphasis on diagnosis and diagnosis, as I learned, is a really negative way to start working with someone Yeah, because you're right away labeling, you're right away talking to them about all the things that were wrong, and, yeah. and right away you leapfrog over all the resiliency, strength, all their coping mechanisms that have been working for them. Yeah. And so it starts us off on the wrong foot. I also think that you alluded to um, deficit-based language limits us to the negative sides of ourselves and limits us from solutions and our potential. You also Mm. talked about dualistic way of thinking. Mm. So one of the real problems I have felt that limits us again in our looking for solutions is our habit of thinking dualistically. I'm either racist or I'm not. (laughs) I'm either good or I'm bad our country is either healing or it's going in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And usually none of that is true. Most of the time, both things are working simultaneously. Both are true. Mm -hmm. If we broaden our, our vision on solutions and really step back and get kind of a better perspective, it opens up lots of different possibilities. Maybe I'm part of the problem. I didn't see myself as part of the problem because I have all these good things that I do too. I have mm-hmm. black friends. I, I have <laughs> protested. I like the music. But the truth is, I'm really still part of the problem. Are we running the risk of putting the responsibility on the people that developed systemic racism to
1: give us another alternative? So is that a way of, ask, like, are we asking white people to fix this? Yeah. Yes, because they should. And also, I want to be a part of fixing those things too, right? I mean, I think that's the thing is that, uh, look, as long as we're going to have an integrated society, we have to have integrated teams, like, approaching this stuff. And I think that's why there's an important call for having diversity and having inclusive environments in every way possible. It's because, like, I the only shouldn't be placed on any one group or individual because, all serve the benefit from a collective society that values humanity and so what i'm asking people to do is to walk with me right like mm-hmm. i'm not asking you to walk ahead of me i'm asking you to like even walk behind me i think there's times that you're going to need to walk behind me but i what i'm saying is that fundamentally we should be on the same path together mm-hmm. and so uh if that means that there are going to be times that i'm asking you to carry a little bit more than me History's shown that I need you to carry a little bit more than me right now. So, like, that's okay, and you need to be okay with that.
0: We've done our share of carrying. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Can you give me examples in history of where the dominant group that holds power has willingly given it over?
1: No. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for
0: your honesty. (laughs) I struggle with that one, too, because I feel like if we're waiting for white people to say, okay, we're going to give it to you, it's never going to come. No, no, no.
1: I mean, look, I mean, no. Part of why I, I grimace and say no is is the key word of willingly. Mm-hmm. Willingly no, like people in mass who feel like they have something to lose, it is in mass people do not willingly seek to change or give up something. And, mm-hmm. they, and people do see these things as giving up things. So like, no, I don't think any dominant group has ever willingly like giving up things. I think dominant groups have been forced to reconsider what the boundaries are of like, access and power and opportunity, but not willingly giving up things. And
0: I would also add that it's only when people within the dominant group say, hey, yeah, we agree with the subjugated group that the dominant group relinquishes some control and some power.
1: Yeah. I feel like we're talking about this at a high abstractish level. I think we it are. also needs to be like grounded in the fact that like those kind of type of strides, those types of arguments come with literal costs, right? Those come at the cost of being excised from communities and families. They come at the cost of actual lives. Like I think about the number of Black Lives Matter activists who have gone missing over the last couple of years and or who have died under very mysterious circumstances. We know that these things, that these conversations don't come without harm and change does not come without backlash in a lot of ways. You know, I think there's things about this that need to be very steely-eyed for people um, when we talk about this too. So Mm -hmm. it's... It is not just about like, how do we ideologically think about things being different? Like to what degree do you believe change needs to happen? Do
0: you remember when you first became aware
1: of race? Yeah, absolutely. Seventh grade class, I grew up in Trenton. We moved, my mom moved us, my younger sister and I over into Ewing Township, was like a suburb of Trenton. I was in the middle school, public school, and at the time had a school modeling construct that was like track classes. So it was like high level was one, middle level was two, lowest level was three. In the vein of all this stuff, when we migrated from Trenton into Ewing, they immediately put me into the bottom track class. Immediately, without question. And we didn't know anything to even question that. My English teacher at the time pulled me to the side, just like, you don't belong in this class. You actually should be in a much higher level class. She's like, I want you to take this slip, go to the counselor's office, take this note with them, and make sure that they have you moved out of this class. And that fundamentally changed the trajectory of like my life, I think, in a lot of ways. But it also includes that, as a result, I was in this top-level class. We're about to do uh, a class presentations on historical figures. The idea was that everybody could pick who they wanted to represent. At the time, I was a huge Charles Lindbergh geek. How old were you? Um, however old you are in <laughs> seventh grade, 12?
0: Were you alone in your, in your worship of Charles Lindbergh in the seventh grade? Sir, I am alone <laughs> in many of my... <laughs>
1: hobbies and interests in life <laughs> that has not changed in my life yeah i mean it was quirky. i was a quirky kid i rem- i remain a quirky man in a lot of ways but um yeah it was i mean it was a little it was a little extra but I-, I thought the story the Lindbergh story is fascinating compelling and so she comes up and down like the rows, and she gets to me and uh she's got a little clipboard and she's like okay tremaine what a, um who do you want to be and i was like charles Lindbergh. and she pauses her pen and she looks like she's like you can't be him and I was like, why? And I'm thinking, oh, because someone else must have like already signed up. She's like, you're black. Mm. I think I literally just like sat there and like stared at her <laughs> like that. Just long, what do you say pause. to that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Because, like you know, I'm a young black kid. She's my white teacher. Um, there's a lot of power dynamics there. And I didn't know what to say. And then she like, she, her and I like just kind of look at each other for a mm. few moments. And then she says, Martin Luther King. And then she moves wow. on. Wow. And what year was this? That would have been like 91, I guess, Mm -hmm. somewhere around there. Do you remember the first
0: time you heard the N-word?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think it was roughly around the same time. We were all watching Roots. It was a class of 30. I was literally, if not the only black student, I was one of two maybe in that class. There's a particular slave scene that we're watching. It's even so hard to like talk about still now. Mm -hmm. But I remember hearing, I was sitting at the front of the class and I'm Hearing the kids at the back of the class go, hey, there's Tremaine. And my teacher's like, stop, stop, stop. And then someone, I don't remember, I honestly don't remember if it's the same kid or if it was a different kid. But someone, uh, one of the other kids was like, don't say that about Tremaine. He's one of the good. Mm. I'm sure he meant
0: that uh, positively, right? I'm sure he meant what he Mm -hmm. said. Final question. Yeah. Historically, the media has been really important, I think, in opening people's eyes to racism. I've heard a lot of people talk about, they didn't really understand what was happening in the civil rights movement until the media started to send film into their, their living rooms showing the dogs and the fire hoses and the beating of black people in the South. But it seems at that point, the media was handling things in maybe a a more responsible way. Hmm. Do you think the media is playing a helpful role in moving us toward a society where there's Less systemic racism?
1: No, because I think the other thing that we've seen about media over time now is that it's become just as polarizing as like our other spaces, and you know, now media does reinforce the echo chambers that we live in life, and um, and so like you know that's why we have CNN versus Fox News and MSNBC, like they've now become not just media companies, they become brand extensions around what your beliefs are. And what might the consequences be? Even the like kind of good media spaces still struggle with representative voices and they still maintain chasms, even in the good places. Well said. Trey, we'd really like to thank you for visiting with us, spending some time, enlightening
0: us. It's been inspiring, eye-opening, a little uncomfortable at times, but that's all okay. Part of the process. We really value your writing and your voice, and we thank you for giving voice to what a lot of us are unable to or unwilling to put out there. And it's much appreciated much needed. Thank you. Shed has been brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. Thank you again for listening, and if you like what you heard, please share our podcast with your friends and family. Shed is produced by Amy Schumer, Renee Richardson, Jack Abbey, Tony Phillips, Chris Fisher, and the Vineyard Gazette.